Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar Magazine, sponsored by Phi Beta Kappa. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastek. In Great Britain, some 3,000 villages and towns disappeared in the Middle Ages due to the effects of the Black Death alone. Zoom out on the time scale, then factor in storms and floods, economic or social shifts, climate change, and war, and the number of abandoned settlements balloons. From the ruins of Britain's some 6,000-year history of settlements, the historian and broadcaster Matthew Green selected eight to visit in his new book, Shadowlands, A Journey Through Britain's Lost Cities and Vanished Villages. From the mysterious warrens of Scarabray and the medieval city that fell off a cliff, Green takes us to the Stanta villages of Norfolk and Capelcalen in the 20th century. As man-made climate change causes ever more extreme weather events and threatens to engulf our coastal cities, these places are a memorial to the past and harbinger of the future that awaits us. Matthew Green joins us from the not-yet-drowned streets of London to chat about his new book. Thanks so much for talking to me, Matthew. Thank you for having me. So as someone who is also fascinated by disappeared places, but is not a resident of a little island where villages fall off cliffs on the regular, I'm curious whether you were just born obsessed with all the lost places in Great Britain, (laughs) or was there one place in particular that kicked off this passion project? So essentially, I got called to a clifftop in Suffolk in the east of England, as you do. Um, And it was for a tiny bit part in a television programme. And um, as I was standing on this cliff, they said, you know, if you stare out just into the, you know, the grey ocean waves, beneath that lies an entire drowned medieval city. And I was completely struck with just how overpowering the sensation was, you know, what what, what a sense of presence there was in the absence. Um, And I began to think, would it be possible to construct an entire kind of ghostly history of Britain through places which no longer uh, exist. And not just cities, but villages wiped out by the plague, abandoned ghost islands, um, ghost towns. And it felt very fitting to do that because one of the main mediums of destruction uh, was water and extreme weather events and storms. And, you know, as, as the planet heats, we're going to see more and more of that. And indeed, there are places that are vanishing into the sea now. So it was um, premonitory. Um, I'm writing about the past, but it's also intended as a kind of awful premonition of the future, or a sort of call to arms um, as well. So that, that, that gave me the idea. Uh, I then set off on what sounded like an incredibly morbid pursuit, just going to all these places that no longer exist on a itinerary of destruction. Um, But actually what I found to my surprise was that the ruins of these places and sometimes a total absence can be quite cathartic and uplifting. Um, And it had quite a sort of emotional effect on me by the end of my travels um, three years on. Well, I think my favorite of all these places is where you start, actually, Scarabray. And in the book, you talk about choosing places based on how they became abandoned. But what's really cool about Scarabray is that we don't actually know. And so even though there's this beautiful ruin in the sand dunes, this cocoon, this warren where people lived before the pyramids, before Stonehenge, 
even though archaeologists have studied it and it was actually the inspiration for the theory of a Neolithic revolution. Yes. I mean, everything we know about it is still supposition because we have the least evidence of any of the other sites in the book. Yeah. So how do you write about a place that's a total mystery? I'm very glad you said that because I was um, worried about that chapter because it's prehistory. So by definition, there's no written records um, at all because they, they didn't have writing. So here we have, exactly as you described, this very surreal looking subterranean warren of identically sized huts, like a commune bored into a sand dune and been preserved in the sand for almost 4,000 years. Um, I thought I could either, you know, be, be sort of definitive and authoritative and say this is exactly what it was. It was a colony of magician priests, which is linked to the monuments in the middle. Or I thought we could go another way and just say, well, you know, let's admit we don't know. Let's embrace the uncertainty and almost kind of treat it like a sort of work of abstract art, trying to um, interpret it. And, you know, sometimes when you go that far back in, into deep time, um, all you can really hear is the wind in your ears. But I did want to contextualise it because what looks like this really weird underground warren um, was actually strikingly avant-garde at the time because it was, you know, it, within that hinterland when humanity stopped being nomadic hunter-gatherers and began to put down roots, had built structures for the living, completely radical. Up until that point, built structures tended to house the dead, not the living. Um, and this was a completely new mode of existence which is still with us today, and which paved the way for all the other settlements as well, because without the earliest villages, you're not ever going to have towns or cities. It's kind of the point from which our entire civilization unfolds, because it allows, you know, if you've got roots and you're staying in the same place, tilling the land instead of marauding forever over it, you can have writing and culture and civilization and politics. So there really is a sort of unbroken thread going all the way back. And although this was not the earliest settled community, it's the best preserved one in the whole of Northern Europe. And it, it gives you a real thrill staring into those caverns. Um, you know, obviously a lot of it is unfamiliar. We don't know what a lot of the implements before, but you do see things that bring a kind of flicker of warmth through that kind of cold abyss of millennia, like um, sort of fireplaces and beds and cupboards, even little Neolithic urinals and, and things that sort of connect us to our ancestors, and there's the uncanny sense that they've only just left, which is exacerbated further, as you say, because we have got no idea why it was abandoned. Honestly, it sounds a little cozier than another place that we'll talk about, St. Kilda. Yes. And I, w I would rather be on Scarborough. Yeah, for good reason. Yeah. <laughs> so water is one of the most devastating forces in the future, yeah. in the present, mm. frankly, but also in the past. And I think it's telling that there are three places in your book that are taken over by water. Yeah. One of the most famous is Dunwich, yes. which, you know, washed into the sea, fell off a cliff, very dramatic. Yeah. Um, you also talk about Winchelsea, which has both its old and mm. new versions. It was the first city to dissolve into the sea, but certainly not the last. No. And in your introduction, you write about wanting each disappeared place to build on the next to be slightly different. Mm. So what distinguishes a place like Dunwich, which falls into the ocean, from a place like Winchelsea, which also falls, well, slides into the ocean on shingles? Yes. Well, they, they, they illustrate um, 
different things, firstly, about how these places grew to such prominence, um, the manner in which they were destroyed, even if it was generally at the hands of nature, of the sea, um, but also how they're remembered as well. So if we start with Winchelsea, this was um, a big sprawling city on the southern coast of England. Unfortunately, they built it on a giant shingle spit, um, which sounds like the craziest, the most insane idea you could come up with, but actually it gave the fishermen unrivaled access to the French ports because it was near the most narrow crossing with France. Um, and it was this kind of tagliatelle of twisting, winding streets parceled in seawater. But from the mid-13th century, medieval climate change meant that a series of ferocious sea storms clawed individual streets and sections of the city um, into the ocean. It, it, it illustrates, you know, different ways in which people respond to the imminent demise of their community. Um, and you see this in Winchelsea much more than in Dunwich. Uh, the king simply doesn't accept it. You know, he's like, I'm not going to let something as puny as the ocean waves lay low one of my favourite ports. Um, so he turns up, fact-finding mission, um, deduces that haunting words, like much of it is sunk and the rest hopeless long to stand. Um, and then just as the final storm polishes off Old Winchelsea, he rebuilds it. He, he literally translates it to a new site further inland on a hill and it's built according to a kind of gridiron layout. It was like a medieval Manhattan with crisscrossing streets and it had about 90 wine caves where all the finest wine from all over Europe used to gush in. Um, and it was populated by the most ferocious pirates in, in Europe as well. He used to intercept these wine caves and just hurl the sailors overboard and drink their wine as they were drowning in the waves. Anyway, all, all was looking good. It had a population of around 10,000, which was a lot for the early Middle Ages, um, until nature played a second card and the harbour got, got sort of clogged up by a new accumulation of shingle and gradually it silted up, which meant that these ships could no longer sail in, um, and the whole lifeblood drained away. So, you know, it had overcome the Black Death, it had overcome all these attacks at the hands of the French and the Castilian, but it couldn't survive once again being in the crosshairs of nature. And all that's left today is this kind of spectral echo, a tiny village with an enormous ruined cathedral, and you walk miles across the fields, they're ghost streets, to find the original city gate just marooned and rustic isolation. So for me, that was a cautionary tale because no one knew in Winchelsea that they were in the shadow of annihilation until it was too late. Dunwich, the second one you mentioned, its demise was much more incremental. So the, the, the storm that polished off old Winchelsea sliced about a fifth of Dunwich, which is a different part of the country, off its cliff. And that precipitated a much longer process of coastal erosion. So within 200 years, half of it was underwater. Um, by the 1900s, all that was left was just the gaunt remains of this jagged church, which had once been miles inland, but was now just teetering on the brink of the cliff. Then in 1922, that toppled off and plunged into the waves. So it's not always as sudden as we think. Um, and the interesting thing about Dunwich is how it was remembered, because it didn't vanish, you know, a bloody click of the fingers. Everyone could see how inevitable its demise was, which meant that it became a kind of lightning rod for artists and romantic writers and uh, illustrators. 
um, who found beauty in decay. And they saw the gradual disembowelment of the city by what they called the great ruminating lip of the sea. The ruins of this church kind of showed sort of a, a derailment of the timeline and brought into focus how fragile the present was and also seemed to prognosticate a future demise. And I think that's what we see in ruins. And, and, and they saw enormous beauty in the inevitability of Donwich's decline. That one illustrates, I think, how people project onto lost cities and how they can be remembered. Um, and one final thing is just how stubborn some people were. I mean, there was a, an old lady living on the cliff edge. Literally, the, the, the sea was lapping at the foot of the cliff. And she signed a 500-year lease on her hand. I mean, I don't know if she thought she was going to live for 500 years, odd in itself. But, but you know, some people simply do not give up. And there are examples elsewhere of, of people actually committing suicide when they know the game's up, rather than leaving the land that they feel such an attachment to. But Winchelsea and Dunwich are probably the uh, flagship stories in the book, because it's water which lays them low. I mean, the, the studies that show much of London will be underwater by the end of this century, if not before. And there are lots of folklore about these places. It was said that if you stood on the cliffs of Dunwich, you were meant to be able to hear uh, the bells of its 50 churches sounding from the deep. And it could be that in time, I live in Hampstead, which is sort of a bit further to north of London, very high up, and you can look down and see the whole city. Maybe later this century, people will be standing there listening out for the sound of all the Christopher Wren churches clanging from the watery wasteland um, below. Both those examples are a good transition to the second half of the book, in which it's no longer things outside of man's control, but humanity itself yes. that is causing its own demise. So I wanted to ask you about St. Kilda, which to me pulls from some of these things you talk about with Dunwich and Winchelsea. The residents are very stubborn. Yeah, yeah, very. For one thing. And in contrast to the other examples, it's less contact with nature that is their demise than their contact with modernity in yeah. a way. Because yeah. it's been inhabited continuously for 2,000 years or more. And then... Somewhat suddenly, the 29th of August, 1930, it's evacuated, by which point there's only 30-odd people there anymore. And there's this very poetic line you quote from one of the last people at the, the doomsday tea they have. Yes, lovely, yeah. Who says, between you, me, and the deep blue sea, I think you're on your last legs. Yes, yes. How does St. Kilda disappear? Because it's still there, houses and all. It's just nobody lives there anymore except for the sheep. Uh, yes, well, that is a powerful line from the nurse. And I, I often think that when, you know, the, the, the game's up. And Doomsday Tea is a nice way of putting it. I wish I'd thought of that as well. But yes, essentially, um, this was an autarky, a perfectly self-contained community in the remotest part of Britain. Um, when I say that... It, it's still insanely hard to get to today. Um, it's like an eight-hour ferry ride, but on a tiny ferry. And you don't know if you're actually going to be able to get there or not until you get to the pier, because the crossing from the, to the northwest of Scotland is so dangerous. Um, sometimes you just simply have to turn the ship back, which meant that for most of their existence, the community there had to rely upon 
birds. They had to grab birds from cliffs, puffins, fulmars, gannets, you name it, clawing their way up the cliffs, grabbing them, boiling them, sometimes in porridge, remarkably, and actually having very little contact with the outside world. Um, until in the 18th century, various Enlightenment philosophers decided that this would actually be the perfect way of discerning whether these you know, lofty philosophical ideas about natural man, i.e. man who had not been tainted by civilization, was you know, an innocent being, like, like a prelapsarian, um, or whether they were a being of wicked depravity, like Hobbes had said, you know, in a war of all against all. Um, and that meant that they were compelled to visit the island. And although these travellers' accounts often tell us more about the you know, beholder than the observed, um, it is striking that they describe this island where the community knows nothing of money, they don't really have property, um, they don't have any vice, you know, this is the age of consumerism, of the umbrella and the hot chocolate and um, wallpaper. They don't have anything like that. It's just a sort of stark existence on these quailing landforms that sort of burst through the earth so many millions of years ago. But what happens little by little is that the islanders become reliant upon the tourists um, and they, 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 they develop something of a fancy for tobacco and sweets and mirrors they'd never seen before. They'd never seen a tree. They'd never seen a bee. All sorts of things. But more ominously, it instilled them with a sense of wanderlust that an easier life was available beyond the shores. Particularly the young who began to think, well, do we really want to be growing up on this barren rock when people are turning up with this thing called electricity and with cameras and writing and all sorts of other things like that? And gradually their autarky was undermined. Um, they became dependent upon these visiting ships, steamer ships in the Victorian period, for supplies um, of food. And they slowly stopped grabbing the birds from the cliffs. They didn't really till the land because there was too much salt spray and it was unfertile. And that meant that when ships came, they were fine. But when ships did not come, and they could go you know, years, years or so without coming, they were horrendously vulnerable to droughts and starvation. And, you know, they had this terrible infant mortality called lockjaw. And the tourists actually used to introduce diseases for which the St Kildans didn't have any immunity. So gradually, they all want to leave, the, the young at least. And, and, and you see in its twilight, these very moving postcards showing a depleted island, very few young people remaining until... There's a succession of terrible winters, crop failures, and by the end of this one particular winter of hell, uh, all the islanders petition the government and say, well, we, we want out. Like, this is not sustainable anymore. We want a better life elsewhere. So tragically, they have to grab their last puffins for porridge in the morning, um, leaving the Bibles open at the book of Exodus and gathering their dogs, drowning them in the bay, then they sail off and, and, and they see their former home becoming a, a distant speck on the horizon. So in that sense, it is um, modernity itself, progress, which is the medium of oblivion. But in another sense, it's interesting because, you know, why are people drawn to these lost places? Um, in the 18th century, they were philosophically driven the tourists of the Victorian age just wanted to look at primitives and savages almost to try and rescue them. But I think, you know, people still go to St Kilda, sometimes to see the abundance of wildlife, of, of the great stacks, which have swirled and halos of birds, but also 
by imagining that earlier autarky, it's a kind of vision of to what our society might have to regress to in the wake of some sort of environmental or nuclear or other apocalypse. And um, they basically regressed to exactly this kind of life that they were living on Scarabray all those thousands of years earlier. So I'm glad, not glad, but it's good that you mentioned <laughs> the possibility of what do we regress to in the wake of nuclear war? Yes. Because war is another big reason that places disappear. Yeah. But what's striking about the example in your book, the so-called Stanta villages in Norfolk, is that they were not abandoned because of something that an enemy military did. Mm. It was actually the British military who seized these villages mm. in World War II. And it's the British military who's never given them back. Yes. Just reuse them and reuse them and reuse them. Yes. So uh, as you mentioned, when you think of war as a medium of oblivion, a medium of destruction, most people would think about, you know, uh, cities um, suffering aerial bombardment or being wiped off the map, um, you know, atomic bombs being dropped. But sometimes it's your own military that needs to appropriate the land. And there's an extraordinary statistic in, in the book that, you know, in, in the early years of the Second World War, a fifth, the entire landmass of Britain, you know, the click of the fingers was appropriated by the War Office, now the Ministry of Defence. You know, and the, the British are obsessed with sort of property rights and those not being um, sort of respected. So, but, but actually, you know, if the military wants your land, it can just take it. And that's precisely what happened. And within these areas, um, there were clusters of villages. And the villagers were usually told, you know, do it for the war effort. Um, suffer a bit of pain for the wider good. It's a necessary evil, but we will let you back once the war is over. And in the case of one military zone called Stanta in East Anglia, that wasn't the case. So they did take over six villages, remodelled them to resemble Nazi villages, um, to train British troops for the D-Day landings. Um, the Second World War was won. They were expecting to go back. Simply didn't happen. And some people tried to go back only to find tanks driving through their hedges and these semi-feral rabbits running wild and, and these war games and mock explosions going on. And it drove some people, sadly, to kill themselves. And the, the reason this happened was because the military thought, well, we defeated the Nazis, but there's lots of other threats out there, like Russia. So the villages are remodelled um, to become mock Soviet villages in case they have to go and fight in the plains in Central Europe. And then not only that, um, ultimately... Irish villages, because of the war against the IRA, um, Balkan villages, Iraqi villages, and most strikingly, its most recent guise was as a eerily vivid simulacrum of an Afghan village, right down to synthetic aromas being pumped out, the aroma of rotten meat, um, amputee actors playing the victims of suicide bombers, um, Hollywood special effects companies providing these pumps to, to spray out the blood, um, mosques sounding the call to prayer. And this is highly surreal to have this in, in this rather sort of grey corner of Britain. But pretty much every single troop that passed through to Iraq or Afghanistan had to go to one of these places. Um, so it's an instance of lost places becoming zombified by the military and actually morphing into something else. You know, I mean, there are going to be wars, but they're going to be sort of a, a frantic 
global scrambles for kind of like sparse resources. There's going to be um, conflict from from all the kind of waves of migration that um, climate change is going to engender. And, you know, the military has the power just to appropriate it like that. So it's a really eerie landscape. It took me a long time to get in there. They were very suspicious of why I wanted to get in there. Huge perimeter fences, armed guards. Eventually I convinced them I wasn't a spy and I went on a motorised tour of this landscape. And nature is kind of blooming, you know, because it's been uncultivated pretty much for 80 years now. Um, But that's interspersed with signs of something weird going on. Like the whole thing is peppered with ghost churches, which are garlanded in barbed wire. And um, it's it's to those churches that the former residents and their descendants are allowed back just for a ghostly service once a year. And they go back and visit their former homes, which are now just uh, heaps of rubble, like bullet-ridden ruins. I don't want to end on that note because it's very grim. Yes. Even though it seems like increasingly like the future we deserve. (laughs) But you end the book on ultimately a hopeful note. Cabalcalen, a Welsh village that fought against being flooded to provide Liverpool with a reservoir in 1964. Mm -hmm. They lost the fight, so it may sound surprising that I think this is an inspiring episode. But unlike the other places we've talked about, Kapolkalen's inhabitants did fight back against this displacement. Yes. And, you know, their their enemy just sounds like a villain out of a dystopian novel, the Corporation of Liverpool. Yes, yes. <laughs> so can you talk about this village and why you chose to end the book on this note? It's it's a fantastic narrative with, with, with these kind of corporate, almost Hitchcockian villains. Um, and, you know, it's this little kind of rural David against this big industrial Goliath. And I wanted to show that, you know, it's not just nature that um, wipes places off the map. Sometimes, you know, one part of a country can do it to another part. Um, And also it's kind of a metaphor for climate change in the sense that, you know, that they they literally drown it, you know, and they're doing it deliberately, which is kind of in an indirect way what, what, what we are doing. But this was basically one of the sole... Welsh-speaking villages left in Britain. And that counted for something, because you know, after the Norman Conquest, the English came across and basically colonised Wales. It was the first place England ever colonised, and tried to eviscerate its traditions, its culture, of which language was the biggest manifestation. And remarkably, in spite of those efforts, it had survived, but it was very much in decline by the mid-20th century with the arrival of television and English language newspapers and various other things. Um, and to the residents' horror, they, you know, they were just sitting down for breakfast one day, a couple of days before Christmas 1955, glanced at a newspaper which casually informed them that the valley in which their village was located was going to be drowned um, because Liverpool, an industrial city in England, had decided that without that particular reservoir, it was going to run out of water and its inhabitants were going to die of thirst. It was ridiculous. Um, There was very little they could do about it ostensibly because it was going to be voted through Parliament and English MPs massively outnumbered the Welsh equivalent. So what they did was they managed to kind of arouse the Welsh into a state of white-hot indignation by getting everyone who cared just to send letters to the Corporation of Liverpool to the Minister for Wales in Whitehall to try and force them to change course 
um, through the force of public opinion. You know, predictably, that doesn't work. They, the villagers turn up and march through Liverpool, saying you, you don't want the spectre in your water, drown other people's homes, not ours. Um, they're simply ignored. It goes to be voted through Parliament, um, as everyone had expected. And even bombs, you know, there, there, there are terrorists um, who, who try to blow up the Transformers and about 20 separate explosions to no avail. The perpetrators are simply locked up. And all the villagers can do in the end is look on in horror as the whole valley is stripped. All the trees are dug up, the rail lines, the roads, the dead are dug up from their graves. Uh, their chapel is demolished, the post office gone, the school teaches its final lesson. All the houses are crushed and removed. And then the waters gradually rise and they stand and watch as their former homes just dissolve and slip beneath the waves. Then in a final kind of uh, outrageous, outrageously tone-deaf gesture, the, the Lord Mayor of Liverpool turns up and throws a tea party on the banks to sort of celebrate this great feat of modern engineering and the, the Welsh like collapse the marquee, throw bricks and flagpoles and try to set flags on fire, um, drowns him out as he's you know, lauding this wonderful new reservoir. Um, but then he quite literally drowns him out by yanking on this lever and pouring sort of 68 billion tonnes of water into the reservoir and it's open. But the reason the story is perhaps hopeful is that it, it didn't go under in vain. You know, the memory of that lost community where people were so proud of their heritage lives on. It gave a real boost to the Welsh nationalist cause, eventually meaning that Wales did get its own assembly to make sure that those sorts of decisions would only be made locally. Um, I, I was researching and in, in the archives, I found a lady that said that she had called her daughter, Caelan, just to make sure the memory of the village was perpetuated. And to this day, all over Northern Wales, North Wales, I should say, you, you see the words, which means remember Trewerin, what's happened here. It's become a sort of metonym for travesty and, and, and outrage, like the strong oppressing the weak. And it meant that nothing like that happened again. But still, a, a very eerie place to visit. I made sure I went and visited every single place that I wrote about in this book and on foot as well, because I thought that would be a more natural sort of pace. And I hopelessly misjudged how long it was going to take to get to this, to Lynn Cailin. And, and, and I got there in, in the twilight and then got cut off in a lightning storm and ended up sort of just really spooky, just as the rain was beating down, staring into this sort of sepulchre of Welsh nationhood. It, it, it's spooky as well because sometimes these lost places physically reappear. Dunwich, we mentioned earlier, at certain freak tides, you can see the remains of its submerged churches rearing from the waves. Um, on at least five occasions, the village of Capelcalin has reappeared from beneath the water in times of drought. So you can see the old roads and the underground bridges and the stubs of the houses, and they're, they're very swiftly spray painted with things like drowned by English pigs. But the sense that there's a whole world kind of languishing beneath it is overpowering and, and something that I think is sadly not going to be a one-off the way things are, are going. In addition to learning about eight abandoned places in Great Britain in Matthew Green's new book, Shadowlands, if you're anything like me, you'll also end up with a reading list of all the fabulous primary sources that Matthew digs up that you've never heard of before. 
like Gerald of Wales's Journey Through Wales, a travelogue from 1191 that marks the earliest surviving impressions of the British landscape, or the Benedictine monk Matthew Paris's observations, or Liber Venus, a medieval treatise on wine. <laughs> Links in the show notes to all of this, including Matthew's new book, as well as a little map of the places we discussed so that you can visualize exactly which part of Britain has disappeared. We'll be back next week. Till then, take care and stay sharp. <laughs>